Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So <clears throat> this is the, the second to last message in this particular series called True Blue. And uh, we're just basically asking the question, what does it look like to be faithful? Our, our subject is the prophet Samuel. We've been looking at his life from the, the Hebrew scriptures. And many of the faithful people in our life, those people that uh, are consistent. They just show up, and 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 they, you know, when you need them the most, they show up. I f- I forgot to put the picture in. I was going to bring a picture of my pastor this morning. I got to see my pastor two weeks ago. Just a glorious time to to spend with him, and and uh, he's one of those people that that I would point to in my life that has been faithful in my life to show up when I needed him in in very difficult seasons, and. Um, you know, we, we have those people that show up again and again in our life, and we're asking a question, what does it look like to have a faithful heart? What does it look like to be a faithful person? What does it look like to be a faithful father or grandfather or, or mother or daughter or employee, employer? And so today we're going to look at a topic that doesn't necessarily, when we think about faithfulness, I don't know that the topic today is one that, that presents itself you know, front and center when we think about this. But as we get into this today, I think that you're going to see it pretty clearly. The thing about faithfulness is, faithfulness is hard enough on normal days. Just trying to be a faithful person on a, under normal circumstances, that's one thing. But the topic today is fear. <clears throat> and faithfulness becomes a lot more difficult when we get scared, when we are fearful of some one thing or another. So the question this morning that I want you to wrestle with is what are you afraid of? And I'm not talking about spiders or snakes or wasps or something like that. I mean, or clowns. I know some of you are probably wigged out by the clowns. But, but what, what, what are you afraid of? What, what um, emotional thing? What, what, when you think about life, what are the things that you, what keeps you from doing the things that God would call you to do? For some, it's the fear of not looking successful. For some, it's the, the, the fear of letting other people down or, or the fear of not having enough. It's, it might be the fear of not being enough. It, it might be that you're, you're, you have a fear of being overlooked or a fear of, of being alone. Some people have a fear of dying. And, and those fears can interfere with the things that God calls us to do sometimes. And so the question is, what are you afraid of? Some of us live in fear um, that, that we can't really pinpoint if I were to say, what are you afraid of? You'd say, Brett, I, I don't know. I just, I just know that it just kind of stalks me through my days. And, and at, at night when I lay down, I just, I'm just uneasy all the time. And it's just, I'm anxious. What are you afraid of? Our story opens this morning. And if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and then we'll skip over to chapter 15 toward the end. And then I've got some supplementary verses there to show you as well. But Chapter 13 is where we're going to be today. We're going to look at two people today. We're going to look at King Saul, and we're going to look at Samuel the prophet. And what you're going to see in this story is that it is laced with fear. It's everywhere. The story takes place 1,100 years before the time of Christ. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 6, this is what we read. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, They hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Anywhere there was a hiding place, they were diving into those hiding places. 
Verse 7, the second part, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Now, that, that kind of, you know, you under, underline that, that phrase, quaking with fear. What does that mean? That is a knee-knocking, wet-your-pants kind of fear, right? That is like, oh my goodness, I've never been this afraid in my life. That's the kind of fear these guys are experiencing. You open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 13, and you ask, what's going on here? Well, this is what's going on. They're surrounded on every side. You know, they, they, the Philistines were a massive army, very scary. And the Philistines were described as more numerous than the sands of the sea. So when you think about that, I mean, it's just like, man, you can't even, you can't even count that. Israel had a standing army at this point of about 3,000 guys. Now, listen, that's a, that's a good attendance night for a Friday night football game in Indiana, right? I mean, you think about trying to go against the Philistines with 3,000 dudes, and, and they weren't your, you know, they weren't on par with Philistine soldiers. They didn't have the same technology. They didn't have the same experience. They weren't seasoned fighting men. These were like farmer soldiers that the Israelites had. And, and you know, they're, they're, they've got onto their, what would that be, the Southwest, they've got this huge army that's described as, as many as the, the sands of the sea. They have the latest fighting techniques. They have the latest technology in terms of weaponry and how to use it. Um, they had chariots, and on open ground, if you, if you were up against an army with chariots, they would just mow you down. Uh, it was really scary to think about going against something like that. So what the Bible described for us just a minute ago is that it was a critical situation, and the Israelites are hiding any place they can find to hide. They are not forming ranks. They are not in columns. They are not organized. They are not preparing to fight. They are hiding. And the description we're giving, given is that they were quaking with fear. There are two characters in this story, Samuel, that we've been tracking all along, and then the, the new one is King Saul that we, we learned about last week. Now, Samuel is old now. In fact, the people have brought him in and basically said, Samuel, you're old. Now, just for you young whippersnappers out there, that is not how you start a conversation, okay? Um, that's a good way to swallow your teeth is what that is. Uh, you don't say that to people. But they bring Samuel in and they say, you're old and your sons are a disappointment. And we don't have anybody that we can, you know, from your side that we can fill, replace you. So we want a king. I told you this last week. Samuel is the go-between between the, the judges of the Old Testament and the beginning of the, the Old Testament kings. And so they tell Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel, of course, he, we saw this last week. He looks back at him and he says, hey, the king is going to take from you. you. You really don't want a king. But God said, Samuel, give him a king. Now, Samuel's the priest. Samuel is also the prophet. Uh, up until this point, Samuel has, has filled two roles for the, the Israelites. One was a spiritual role. And the other is somewhat of a political role. He was kind of the one that they looked to from a political standpoint to be their leader. And now they've said, no, we want, we want a king. So Samuel would have been the one now that is going to give the directives as a prophet. He's going to give the directives to the new king. He's going to be the, the mouthpiece for God as he instructs the new king. And so Samuel hears from God and he, and he, he tells the king, this is what the Lord wants you to do. Samuel's priest and prophet, Saul's the king, Saul's scared, his army is evaporating. And as this story unfolds this morning, just remember, faithfulness is difficult enough when you're just trying to be faithful. 
But when you're afraid, man, it, it takes on a whole new tenor, and it becomes much more difficult. You need to also understand that fear is a thief. Fear will pre- prevent you from accomplishing your most important tasks and, and fulfilling your most important roles in life. If you're afraid, it's going to keep you from doing that job as well as it could be done. Fear can keep you from achieving your most important responsibilities in life. And as we watch the fear settle in on Saul and this army, it's going to give us a great opportunity to think about, well, what am I afraid of? And how does that fear keep me from living my best life? And how does that fear keep me from from really doing the things that I get a sense that God is calling me into, and, and I'm just not stepping into it? Fear can paralyze us, and and fear is paralyzing Saul. Verse verse 7, the second part, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Two questions, why is Saul at Gilgal, and he's there because Samuel has told him to go there? That's where Samuel, Saul, that's where God wants you, he wants you at Gilgal. What's he doing in Gilgal? He's doing one of the hardest things there is to do in Gilgal, and that is to wait. You are to wait. I will be there in seven days. You go to Gilgal and you wait. And he's waiting and he's waiting and Samuel does not show up. Now, this is for Samuel 13. If you were to go back a couple of pages um, to look at at chapter 10, verse 8, you would find this. Uh, Samuel looks at Saul and he says, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Now, does that sound fuzzy to you? Does that sound at all ambiguous, like you don't know what to do, like that doesn't make sense? I think that's pretty clear. You wait seven days, I'll come to you, I will tell you what you are to do. Samuel's going to do two things, and he outlines them here. He's going to function as priest, and he's going to offer sacrifices. He's also going to function as prophet, and he's going to give Saul his marching orders at that time. So Saul goes to Gilgal, and he waits, and he waits. And he waits. And Samuel does not show up. And while he waits, his army is evaporating. He started with 3,000 men. The army gets whittled down. They're starting to dive into caves and cisterns and anywhere they can find to hide. These guys are scared to death. Now he's got 2,600 men. The next day he looks up, he's got 2,200 men. He looks up the next day, he's got 1,300 men. He looks up the next day, he's down to 600 men. And so let me stop and ask you, if you're Saul and this is happening to you, would this scare you a little bit? And the answer's got to be, yeah, if, if four out of five of my guys are dipping out on me, and, and I'm, I'm expected to go against this army that they describe as, the, the, as numerous as the sands of the sea, I mean, I, I stand no shot. We're all going to die. Panic sets in. Verse 8 in chapter 13. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter so he said bring me if you have your pen in your hand you'd circle that bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings and Saul offered up the burnt offering so Saul finds a priestly outfit they find an ox somewhere that they're going to sacrifice on this altar they kill it they put it on the altar and Saul offers the prayers to God that Samuel was supposed to offer But you you say to yourself, wait a minute, Saul's not a priest. No, he's not a priest. Someone else was supposed to do that job. Verse 10, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Now Saul has just disobeyed what, what he's been told by Samuel. 
What do you think Saul is going to say as he walks up to Samuel? Here's what he does. How you doing? (laughs) And Samuel asks the question, what have you done? Saul, what have you done? You were supposed to wait. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Mishmash and they were well armed and they are numbered like the sands of the sea, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. You could summarize at this point in just a few words, and I think you could hear Saul say, I was scared. I was scared. My army was falling away. What little I had was being stripped away from me, and I was faced with this gigantic job and I know that you, you told me to come wait, and, but you didn't come on time. And, and so Saul panicked. Here's what I want you to understand this morning. Fear is a thief. Fear will steal your sleep. It will rob your joy. Fear will take away your peace. And there are times when being afraid can just basically steal our good judgment and cause us to ignore boundaries and go beyond what we're supposed to go beyond and do things and make decisions that we just shouldn't do. And that is exactly what happens to Saul, and it steals his judgment. Fear is a thief. She's 20 years old, or she's, she's a, she hasn't had a, a good friend in 20 years because she had a good friend once, and that person hurt her so badly that she's never risked letting anybody else get close to her because she's afraid that she'll get hurt. And so she goes through life, and her life is all closed off, and she's not open to anybody because she's afraid somebody is going to hurt her. Fear is a thief. There are all kinds of reasons why people go into debt. This particular family goes into debt because they're afraid of what their other family members will think about them if they don't have certain things. They're afraid they're going to be viewed in such a way that it's not good for them. And so what they do is they spend money they don't have on things they don't need to impress people they don't even like just so they can say, hey, we fit in with everybody else and their finances are a mess. Fear is a thief. He won't go get another job even though he needs to get another job. He hates the job he's in. It steals his joy. He he dreads it every day. And instead of going to get the education he needs to have the kind of job he'd like to have, or instead of going out and just looking for that job, he doesn't do that because the job market is laced with the word no. Once in a while you apply for something and they come back and say you're not what we're looking for. No, we don't have any more jobs available. No, you're not right for us. And he doesn't want to hear that. So he never tries and he just every day gets up and goes to a job that he hates. Fear is a thief. It can rob us of sleep. It can rob us of joy. It can rob us of peace. And for Saul, it robs him of his sound judgment. He's scared. And he crosses boundaries that he shouldn't cross. And Samuel is about to speak into this situation with a very firm hand and very strong language. The old prophet is speaking now, and he says this to Saul. You have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Saul, God gave you a very clear directive. It wasn't hard to understand. It's not that you didn't understand it. You just chose not to obey. Samuel's the prophet. He is God's spokesman, and he says... You understand it, 
and you didn't, you, you understood it and you didn't do it. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Saul, somebody is going to replace you and come behind you. The kingdom is going to be ripped out of your hands. And it's going to be given to someone who thinks and cares and, and whose heart beats with the heartbeat of God. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. And then we hear it again. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now let me ask you. Does that seem fair to you? This is a military situation. Your army of farmer soldiers is evaporating. The priest doesn't show up. And so Saul does something that he thought the priest was supposed to do, but the priest didn't show up. And Samuel is now saying, you're going to lose your kingdom over this. Does that seem severe to you? Because it does to me. This is one of those times when I read the scriptures and I come away and I think to myself, you know what? Apparently, obedience is way more important to God than we realize. Apparently, this is a much bigger deal to God than we put stock in sometimes. The primary discussion today is about fear, but because of what Saul did and what he's going to do again, what we're going to see is that a, a pattern develops in the life of Saul. And he gives us an opportunity to talk about the obedient life and what does that look like for us and the fact that God gives us instructions and he very, very highly uh, values the idea that we would follow those, those instructions. So let's take a little trip. Let's leave uh, uh, 1100 BC and let's, let's roll up into Rome, into, into Israel under the rule of the Romans. Jesus has been teaching his disciples and I want to move you into the close quarters of the upper room where Jesus will have what we refer to as the Last Supper. And he's there with his disciples in these close quarters and he is teaching. They're having a meal. And Jesus knows that he only has hours left. These men have no idea what's coming and Jesus, in a very short period of time, is trying to fit a lot of teaching into the disciples because he knows he's about to turn the whole thing over to them. He's going to ascend to the Father and it's going to be on them to carry on the church. And they are not ready. And he has a conversation with them and the conversation is about obedience. Now if you were one of the guys, Peter or Andrew or John or James, you have heard Jesus say all kinds of stuff. You have heard him present the Jesus way. You have heard him say things like, love your enemies, to which we want to respond, well, I'll, you know, I'll think about that. Love your enemies. I mean, that's, you can't really mean that. I mean, really? Love your enemies? That person was a jerk to me. Or he might say, hey, I want you to treat other people like you want to be treated. To which I want to say, yeah, but Jesus, that guy's a jerk. To which Jesus says back to me, so Brett, you're trying to get me convinced that you're never a jerk? <laughs> well, that's not really, you know, that's not what I mean. Yeah, sometimes I'm a jerk. Okay, Brett, then how do you want to be treated when you're a jerk? Well, I'd, you know, I'd like a little mercy and a little grace, a little forgiveness, a little understanding. And Jesus says, you know what? That guy that's a jerk, why don't you give him a little grace? a little understanding, a little mercy. Treat him with those things that you want. On the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, 
don't commit adultery, that's what you've heard. Now, where had they heard that? They'd heard that in the Old Testament, right? They'd heard that in the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. And then he says, but I tell you, be careful of adultery in the heart with your thoughts. But what he really said was, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. How we doing, fellas? We, do, we all right? Because that's, that's difficult, right? And in this day, women were completely covered. Nothing, you know, they didn't show any of their skin. It was, they, they, they were completely covered. Can you imagine what Jesus would say into our culture where our, our world is, you know, is, is full of steamy romance novels and, and internet porn and, and, you know, whatever in the world we are streaming into our homes through our computers these days. And Jesus says, it's not just what you do with your body, it's what you're doing with your mind and it's what you're doing with your heart. For three years, his disciples have heard him teach and challenge them and now they're in the upper room hours before his arrest. And I want you to see the relationship that Jesus drew between obedience and love. And he will say it again and again and again. In a brief period of time, in this small upper room, Jesus is going to speak to them, and it starts in John 14. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. That's verse 15. Then he goes to verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So just so we're clear, Jesus is having this farewell talk with the disciples he knows he's not going to be with them a whole lot longer. And he draws this connection between these two things, between love and obedience. You know, you say you love me, but do you do the things that I tell you to do? And he says, basically, guys, if you love me, you will do what I'm asking you to do. He's not done. He's got a couple more. Jesus replied, verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And then verse 24, he just flips that around. Anyone who does not love me will not do my teaching. Jesus connects love and obedience. Now this is important. Because if you ask someone, when do you experience the love of God the most? I mean, I, this is a conversation that I engage in several times throughout the year. And I, it's always fun when I have this conversation with, with hunters. Because the way hunters answer this question is they answer the question in such a way that it justifies that they can miss church. Because what a hunter will say is, well, I just feel close to God when I'm out in nature. And that 10-point buck walks in front of me. And I hear angels sing. You know, and, and Brett, I just, when I experience nature, that's when God's telling me that he loves me. That's cool. Okay, that's cool. Not completely sold, but I'll give it to you. Let me ask you this question. When does God feel like you love him? And if your answer is, well, when I'm in nature, my response would be, no, no. God feels that you love him when you're obedient to him. God, God, God gets the sense that you're loving him when you do the things that he tells you to do. Somebody else would say, well, Brett, it's not really being in the woods or being in nature, or going on a hike or anything like that. I feel God's presence when we come in here and Shelby's leading us in song and, you know, I'm just praising and my hands are raised and I'm clapping and we're dancing around. It's just awesome and the Lord just speaks to me. My question would be, but when do you speak to him? When do you tell him that you love him? Well, when I'm worshiping. No, you tell him you love him when you do what he says. He said it over and over again. Back to King Saul. Saul is in love with his reputation. 
He's in love with looking successful. But when he gets his instructions, he says, you know what, I might do that. I'll think about doing this one. I'll do that. I'm not doing that. And he picks and chooses. I can do that. I'll do that. I I could do that, but I'm not going to. Does that sound like anybody you know? I might do that. I'll think about it. The Israelites are given a command in the desert. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That is immediately connected to their obedience. Saul has a heart that is far from God. Now before we make any further remarks, let me just ask you, is there an area where God is trying to get your attention? Is there an area where God's calling you to something? You know it, it's undeniable, it's not like it's vague for you. There's this place that God's kind of calling you to, he wants you to do something, and he's saying, I need you to do this, and, and listen, I need you to, I need, it might be, you know, I need you to find new ways to honor your mother and father. Those of you who are younger, you know, God might be saying, hey, you need to honor your father and mother. And you'd say, God, you don't know how hard that is. He would say, yeah, I know how hard it is, but I'm calling you to do it. All right? For somebody else, it would be, you know, I need you to give your stuff away. You got too much stuff. You got too much money. It means too much to you. You need to figure out a way to give some of it away. And it's really easy for us to come up with reasons why we shouldn't do that, but we know God's calling us to to, to you know, get past that. Maybe for you, it's, it's God's calling you away from some habit that isn't good for you that gets in the way bet- of you and him, maybe gets in the way of you and your family or your kids or your marriage or whatever, and you know it's not good for you, and God's saying, hey, listen, we gotta leave that behind. That's not good for you. And you know it. You don't need anybody to convince you. You know it. But you're just saying, well, I, you know, I, I'm not gonna do that. Have you been saying later, or I'll think about it, or have you just flat out been saying, no, no, God, I'm not going to do that. What if you could look back on today, as we've been talking about King Saul and Samuel and his rebuke of his disobedience, what if you could look back on today and that you could say that that's the day that my heart turned around and that's the day that I fully understood that for me to really love God is to, is to get behind the things that he's saying and to just be obedient to him. And, and if I'm totally honest, most of the time in my life, I've not been obedient. But today, that's going to change. Today, I'm going to do a better job. God, by your mercy and with your grace and your help, my no will become a yes. Is that you today? And I think what Jesus might say is, listen, I've poured my love out for you by dying on a cross. Thank you very much for showing me your love in return by doing the things that I'm asking you to do. It's just like any father, or mother for that matter. When your kids do the things that you ask them to do, it communicates that they respect and love you, right? It feels good when your kids do those things that you want them to do. I think God's the same way. I think when we respond in obedience to the things God calls us to, I think it just lights God up. It makes God feel really good. You say, yeah, Brett, but, but, but King Saul loses his crown because of this? No. This isn't a one-time thing for Saul. This is a pattern. One of the next stories is, is in chapter 15. It's, it's, a, it's really one of my favorite stories in the Hebrew Scriptures. I preached on this when I was a, a Bible college student. I went to a, 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 an orphanage home and spoke at their chapel service, and uh, I learned about this chapter through preparing that sermon. And ever since then, it's been one of my favorite stories in the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, Moses goes to Pharaoh 
And he says, let my people go. And, and through after some plagues, the people are leaving Egypt. They're making their way to the land of promise. And they're in the desert. And while they're in the desert, uh, this is at least a couple of hundred years before Saul and Samuel. While they're in the desert making their way to the promised land, uh, the Amalekites attack them. Now, this isn't a normal this isn't a normal army-on-army attack. You know, we think about two armies squaring off with each other and, and they just duke it out. That's not what this is. What the Amalekites did, the Amalekites were nasty, nasty people. They're horrible. What the Amalekites did is they waited. Just think about, if you've got hundreds of thousands of people traveling across the desert, this gr- mass of people, and the Amalekites what we're told is that they picked off the people from the rear. They attacked them in the rear. Now just ask yourself a question. What kind of people would you find at the backside of a large group of people? You would find those who have a difficult time keeping up. You would find the elderly. You would find, you know, moms and dads with small kids. You would find pregnant women. You would find people that that have a difficult time they can't make time like the rest of the group so they're going to kind of straggle behind and we're told that the Amalekites would attack them from the rear these were hateful nasty awful this is an invade rape and pillage kind of people and they've done this forever they did it generation after generation they were doing it all the way up to the time of Saul and the Amalekites were the kind, they were kind of like the Vikings that would kind of roll up into your village and they would kill everything and they would take everything out and they would be on their merry way. They were an awful, awful people. And there comes a point in the life of King Saul where God basically gives Saul instruction and he says, time's up, Saul, you are to end them. You know, your friends, when they find out you're a Christian, one of the questions that you see come up with, with people that don't necessarily go to church or aren't people of faith one of the problems they have is, well, you know, when I look in your Old Testament, there's places where God says, just kill them all. We've well, got to understand, God has had it with the Amalekites. He's had it. These are awful, nasty people. They're not nice people. And God says, I'm going to wipe them out completely. There's not going to be anything left. We're going to take them off the planet. And he says, when you go with the Amalekites and fight against them, I do not want you to do this and pad your own wallet. I don't want you to bring anything back. Don't bring any bounty back. Don't take anything. Don't take any money. You kill it all and you leave the carcasses to rot in the desert. This is their plot. They've earned this. I want to make sure that they don't move forward as a a people anymore. And he says, you do not come home with plunder. And Saul goes off to war. And when they return victorious, he comes in and there's a parade like they would normally do. And in the parade, they've got sheep and oxen, cattle and rams and goats and all these different animals. And Samuel, faithful old Samuel, has a job that he doesn't want to do. He has to walk out now and he has to confront the king. I just want you to, before I read this to you, I want to set the scene, okay? Saul has come back, he's victorious, he's the king, you know, go us, I'm awesome, I'm a great leader, look at what we've done, we got all these animals and all this, and woo, we're awesome, and he's, he's feeling good about himself, and Samuel is going to walk up and confront him, and this is what we're told, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, okay, Saul said, the Lord bless you, I have carried out the Lord's instructions, 
Really? Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear in the distance? Saul answered, notice, it's somebody else's fault. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Now he's going to spiritualize this. You ever done that? You ever tried to spiritualize your own disobedience because you were going to do something for God, but it was completely disobedient? We're going to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Is that what you were told to do? Samuel gets kind of upset. Enough! Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. I don't know how Saul said this, but in my mind it's kind of snarky, like he's full of himself. Tell me, what did the Lord say to you last night? Ooh, Saul. Samuel said, Saul, God told me last night that he made you the king when you were nothing in anybody's eyes. You were a peon. Nobody knew your name. And he elevated you to the place of king. And you come back and you act like this and you've disobeyed. You talk to me like this? Verse 20. You just, it's like two people watching the same thing go on, but they, they see something completely different. Listen to Saul. But I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me, completely destroyed the Amalekites, and brought back Agag, their king. Was that the instruction? That was not the instruction. Kill them all. He's going to blame the soldiers again. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the, sac- than the fat of rams. You, you, know, you say it's for sacrifice. Saul, here's what you need to understand. God values your obedience over your sacrifice. But Brett, I serve in the church. That's wonderful. Do you obey God when he calls you? But Brett, I give my money. That's fantastic. You're very generous. That's awesome. But are you obeying God when he speaks into your life and says, hey, this is what I want you to do? Because what we need to understand is God values that more than anything else that we do. Then Saul said to Samuel, verse 24, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Watch this. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Samuel, I was wrong. And if you'll walk back with me to these soldiers and they can see that we're still together. See, what Saul wants is Saul knows that if he does not have the support of Samuel, he has cooked in front of these soldiers. He knows that. He knows that if, Saul, if Samuel doesn't go back with him in front of these soldiers and they show, don't, don't show solidarity, the soldiers are going to know Saul is in trouble. And, and what does that mean for us? And so he understands that he needs to be allied with, Saul, with Samuel, but, he, but Samuel's had it. Samuel's walking away. And Samuel says, I will not go back with you. I will not give you the satisfaction of appearing with you in front of your men and giving them the illusion that everything's okay because everything is not okay. And we're told that Saul, Samuel goes to walk away and Saul reaches out and grabs his tunic. And as he's walking away, the tunic rips. And Samuel whips around and he looks at Saul and he says, Saul, 
just as my coat has been ripped, your kingdom is going to be ripped away from you on this day. Chapter 13, when Saul is making the sacrifice in Samuel's place, if someone had stepped in and said, Saul, you're going to lose your kingdom if you do this. I don't think Saul would have done it. In this chapter, you know, when he's taken out the Amalekites and, and, and he, you know, Saul comes out and says, you know, why didn't you just obey? I think if somebody, when Saul was saying, hey, keep Agag alive, we're going to take him back with us, and these sheep and goats, we're going to take them back with us. If somebody, if one of the soldiers had come up and said, Saul, Saul, Samuel said don't do that. You're going to lose your kingdom if you do that. I don't think Saul would have done it. See, here's the thing. We don't always know. Here's the eerie part. If you're 13 or 23 or 53 or 93, lock into me for a minute. We get to choose our behavior. We do not get to choose the, circumstance, the, the consequences of our behavior. You can choose what you do. You can't always choose what the, circum, the, the consequences are when, when, the, when the fallout happens. Finish this sentence for me. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Do any of you really believe that? No. No. That's a marketing campaign, right? They got in an office. They said, how can we get people to come to our fair city? I know. We'll tell them that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And then some poor soul goes off to Vegas thinking, well, that's like scripture, right? I mean, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And woo! And then he comes home, and something appears as a text on his phone, and his wife goes, what happened in Vegas? Now all of a sudden, what happened in Vegas didn't stay in Vegas, and now I got consequences. Right? Yeah, not good. What's that mean? It means you can choose to be a cantankerous old man if you want to, and be hateful to everybody around you, and be hateful to your wife, and hateful to your kids, and and just yell and scream and not be very pleasant. You can choose to do that. But you don't get to choose the consequence of whether or not your wife stays with you. You don't get to choose whether or not your kids want to come around you and bring the grandkids around. And they may not do that because you're just an old man that screams, get off my lawn all the time, right? Because of his disobedience, Saul is going to lose his crown to a person whose heart beats with the heart of God. Next week, we're going to wrap this series up, and we're going to look at the, first, uh, at the last task that Samuel really does in his life. And you know, by this point in, the, in Samuel's life, Samuel would say, well, my life's pretty much over. But the thing that I remember Samuel the most for has yet to happen in his life. He's going to go to the town of Bethlehem. He's going to go to the house of Jesse. He's going to anoint this young man as the next king over Israel. And that person will be someone whose heart beats with the heart of God. Listen, fear is a thief. It will steal your sleep. It'll steal your joy. It'll steal your peace. It robs us of good judgment. It's exactly what happened to Saul. He is scared, and it causes him to make some really, really bad decisions. So what are you afraid of? What fears follow you through the day and keep you awake at night thinking, man, I don't want that to happen? Is it a fear of not being successful? Is it a fear of being overlooked? 
Is it a fear of not having enough? Is it a fear that you have a hard time putting your finger on, but just you just it's this anxiety, it's this like this gel that just kind of covers every part of your life and you can't really define it, but you know it's there. The theme of fear, overcoming fear, is not isolated to King Saul. It's a theme that runs from cover to cover in our scriptures. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And they're crossing the desert, and somewhere out there, Moses dies, and they instill a new, install a new leader. His name is Joshua. And this is what gets said to Joshua by God. Many of you, this is your favorite passage of Scripture. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why should I not be discouraged? For the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. Why would I not be afraid? Because the Lord, my God, is with me. He is with you. Do not live in fear. He is with you. The king that takes over after Saul is King David. When King David becomes king, he has all kinds of problems. King David wrote one of the greatest songs that have ever been written. We know it as the 23rd Psalm. I want to read part of that to you. Verse 4, even though I walk through the dark valley, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is with you. The Apostle Paul is encouraging the first group of believers. He writes to the church at Philippi and he says these familiar words, do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul said when you get like that pray and the peace of God will come and it will guard your heart toward the end of his life. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, a young pastor. It's an old pastor writing to a, new, a, a, a pretty new pastor, young pastor. And Paul writes, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. It is a thread that runs throughout the entire scriptures. You get the idea that God kind of knew that we would struggle with fear. You get the idea that God understood that this was going to be a sticking point for us, that, that faithfulness by itself would be hard because we're selfish and we're sinful, but then you add to it that we get afraid of things, that sometimes you, know, you can't do anything about that. You just have to give it to God. You have to overcome it. You have to press through it. Don't beat yourself up because you're afraid. Everybody's afraid of something. But what do you, what do, you do about it? And fear keeps us from achieving those things that God calls us to. So I'm going to ask you to just bow your head. And I want to read over you those, just those instances that I just read, and then I'm going to pray over you. I just want to remind you that he said, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. David said, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Paul said, Do not be anxious. Give your request to God and let his peace come over you. The spirit that comes from God is not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and power and a sound mind. So again, what are you afraid of? What stalks you through the day and haunts you at night? I just want you to know God is with you. God is with you. Father, we are imperfect people. 
We do not get a lot of things right. And Father, being faithful is a full-time job just in and of itself because we are so selfish. We want what we want. We want it now. We're, we're kind of like a glorified two-year-old. And so faithfulness is just a hard thing for us on nor under normal circumstances. Then you add to it that we get afraid of certain things. What will they think of me? I'm afraid I won't have enough. I'm afraid I won't live long enough. I'm afraid I'm, afraid I'm going to lose somebody. I'm, afraid, I'm afraid my health is going to go. I'm, God, I'm afraid. And it keeps us from stepping into the things that you're calling us to. So Father, help us to, to be able to move inside that fear. Help us to remember that you're with us. We have nothing to be afraid of because you're with us. The same way we tell our kids when they're afraid, hey, I'm right here. Nothing's going to happen to you. Father, we can feel you. Just envelop us with your love and remind us that you are right here. We are going to be okay. We praise you. We honor you. We lift you up. We worship you in this space this morning. Thank you for being our God, for being with us even when we're going through things that make us afraid. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.